So recently, my parents reminded me of a story um, of a mother and two children who were actually a part of the uh, church family we were a part of as I was growing up. And it was uh, when this, this uh, mother, she only had two kids at the time, and, and her oldest was, I don't know, maybe two years old or, or so, and then she had a newborn daughter. And they were, she, the mom and the son were in the room of the daughter and the daughter's resting peacefully in the crib. And the mom is standing next to her son as her son is peering over the crib looking at his new little sister. And the mom is basking in this moment of tranquility and her son looking at the daughter. And then the son, he looks up and says, Mom, And she, wondering what he's thinking, says, Yes, son. Let's kill it. (laughs) Now, now that's not what you're expecting, right? Um, That wasn't what she was expecting either. Um, Now, just just so you know, he didn't grow up to be a murderer. Um, he's a he's a follower of Christ today. And uh, but but I tell that story because we have a certain perception, and something didn't happen that that what we thought would happen. And then that's what I think of when I think about the story of the triumphal entry. When we read something like Matthew 21 and you get this excitement of Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem, you don't really expect that by the end of that week, Jesus is going to be killed. How, why do we name this the triumphal entry? Why don't we call it the entrance of defeat? Why do we say this is the victorious entrance in to the city. We know that the gospel authors don't want us to be thinking this is an entrance of defeat. We know even how they write, there's excitement about what's taking place. And they do so because they know scripture's teaching and they know what Jesus actually accomplished. But I want to quote to you from a man by the name of David Platt who comments on this triumphal entry and he says, he says for three years Jesus had preached, taught, and healed And now, during Passover week, he was entering the holy city. It would be difficult to exaggerate the significance of the events that transpire in the remainder of this gospel. This was the week all of creation had been waiting for. Back in the garden, God had promised the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head, you will strike his heel. The Son of God ultimately fulfilled that promise, crushing the head of the snake by his death and resurrection. The events of this week, planned before the foundation of the world, were not just climactic for Jesus' life. This was the climactic week for all of history. These events are so important that Matthew spends 25% of his book on the final days. And it's within this final week that Jesus wants his identity known. If you remember earlier on in his ministry when he heals people, he he tells them something that we find strange often, where he says, don't tell anyone who I am. But the day before Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem, he doesn't give that command to the people that he heals. 
And so we get to Matthew 21 and Jesus enters into Jerusalem and what Jesus does is he reveals who he is and he reveals what he came to do. Really, the triumphal entry reveals who Jesus is as creation's king. But we could wonder, what does that even mean? And today I want to dive into the text of Matthew 21 and treat Matthew 21 kind of like a treasure hunt. That there are are many attributes that Matthew reveals about Jesus, who Jesus is in the story of the triumphal entry, who he is and what he came to do. What type of king is he? And I think as we see these attributes, we're also going to discover the application for us. So if you haven't already, turn your Bibles to Matthew 21. And before I read, I want to pray for us. Uh, that God would show his mercy on us. I also want to pray for the church around the globe and also, as I'm beginning to do as well, praying for one other church in the area that preaches the gospel. So today we're going to be praying for Lakeshore Baptist as they spend time in the Word today. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for your kindness to us that, that this morning we were able to gather together, we're able to to spend time around your word. We're able to talk with other believers. We're able to celebrate the wondrous mystery of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Lord, I pray that this morning you would illumine our eyes, open our ears. I pray, Father, that, that we would be receptive and willing for you to speak to us and not only willing, but Lord, embracing whatever it is you have to say in your word. I pray that we would be like Jeremiah, who said, your words were found and I ate them. I pray that for us, but Father, I do pray that for the global church, the believers around the world, whether, in, whether experiencing persecution or pain or prosperity, I pray, Lord, that, that your church around the globe would, would have their rest and their trust in Jesus, not in the uncertainties even of this world. I pray the gospel would be proclaimed in faithfulness and people would love you more because of what you have done for them. That more people would come to faith in Christ. And Lord, I also ask specifically that your word would be clearly preached and applied at Lakeshore Baptist and that our Christian brothers and sisters there would be faithful to Jesus Christ in their lives this week. That you would grant them the humility and strength to follow you and that your glory would be enjoyed by that church. Again, that people's eyes would be opened. And that your purposes even in Grand Haven would expand through uh, the mission endeavors there through Lakeshore. Lord, that's the prayer request for us. It's a prayer request for them and again for your church. Because this is your church, not ours. May you be praised and pleased. In Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew 21, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. 
The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Now, in reading this, we already can grasp some of the tension. Some people are excited, and some people are indignant. Knowing what's to come, again, the question is, how can we call this triumphant? And it is because of who Jesus is. He's the king. He's the divine, peaceful, prophesied, humble, messianic, prophet, holy, pure, worthy king. Those are the nine descriptors that I came across in studying this text. And these descriptions of Jesus should shape our understanding of his march into Jerusalem as well as the events that are going to transpire in this following week. Jesus is king, but what kind of king is he? And so the first point I want you to see is he's the divine king. As they're outside of the city, Jesus sends two disciples to a nearby village. And he tells them their mission is to get this female donkey with a colt. Now, he actually says they're going to find this in the city. And when they find it, all they have to do is untie them and take them with them. Isn't that stealing? Is that okay? Is it okay for Jesus to steal? I mean, that, that was a question that came into my mind. And... and and let me say, there, there are answers even to that. We, we do have to admit that when we read historical accounts in the scriptures, the authors don't tell us everything that has transpired in a given day, right? They don't tell us every single event. I mean, it is possible that Jesus had talked to this person beforehand on his march to or walking towards Jerusalem and told him, I need these, and then here's the password. When they come, they'll say, the Lord has need of them, and you can give them to me. Or they could be Jesus' own donkeys because the Lord needs them, could refer to, I'm the master of the donkeys. Could be, but even that's speculation. But all, all, all we know is we just don't know what we don't know. What we do know is that Jesus says, when you go into that city, you say, the Lord has need of them. Now, I don't think, though, that we can limit that phrase, Lord, to simply meaning Jesus is master of the donkeys. 
Because we all know that while the term Lord can mean master, the Lord means broader things too, scripturally, doesn't it? To refer to God as the Lord, the master, the ruler over all. And when Jesus says, if a person asks you about this, you say, the Lord has need of them. That's very specific, which I think means the Lord, the Lord over the disciples, the Lord over the person asking, and the Lord over the donkeys. He is the Lord. He is the master over all. So Jesus, approaching Jerusalem, tells his disciples, go get the donkeys. I'm going to walk into the holy city, or I'm going to ride into the holy city on this animal as the divine king. I will reveal to people who I am, the one through whom the worlds were created, the light of the world who brought into being all things seen and unseen is riding in. But why ride in on a donkey? What's the significance there? I think that shows us that Jesus is the peaceful king. Now, by the way, If you read in this text, some people can get confused and think that Jesus rode on two animals. The mother donkey and then the the colt. They spread their cloaks. It says in verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. That would be kind of an awkward sight, right? How do you? What? Um, Sat on them is referring to the cloaks. Okay, so he's riding on the colt, though, according to the prophecy. So he's riding on the colt. Why? It wasn't uncommon for a king to ride on a colt, but if he did that, he did it for a very specific reason. He, he would ride on a colt or on the donkey in order to symbolize peace. So one example would be Solomon. When Solomon was anointed to become king over Israel, David speaks of what is to take place. And David says, have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule. And then he goes on to say, let him be anointed king over Israel and blow the horn and say, long live King Solomon. The reason why Solomon is on the mule is because he's signifying to the nation of Israel he's going to bring a reign of peace. And Solomon did bring a reign of peace and prosperity. But Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem, he is signifying to the people, I'm bringing a reign of peace. A reign as the divine king, a reign of peace that will never end. Listen, the cry of the angels at Jesus' birth was peace on earth. And the only way that peace could come was through the events that would transpire in this following week in Jerusalem. So the king has come to bring peace. The divine king has come. But he's also the prophesied king. Now, don't miss the importance of prophecies. You see, even here in this text, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Matthew does this over and over and over again in his book to emphasize the prophecies and how the Messiah has fulfilled the prophecies. Years ago, uh, when I was in college, I had significant doubts over the authenticity of Jesus being the Messiah. The struggles were deeply felt and they were mentally and spiritually draining on me. I remember clinging to Old Testament prophecies But even in the midst of finding Old Testament prophecies and fulfillments, I would also have this 
voice in my mind saying, yeah, but somebody else could fulfill that. And then I'd find another prophecy. Oh, what about this? Well, somebody else could fulfill that. Somebody, and I, I keep having that voice in my mind. Somebody else could, somebody else could, somebody else could, somebody else. Until I realize, but what about all the prophecies? If you put them all together, the preponderance of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled is astounding. I've heard it said before, statistically, um, the, the probability of one person fulfilling all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, it's like taking silver dollars and, and, and putting them in the state of Texas, filling the state of Texas with silver dollars, two feet high, marking one silver dollar, and then blindfolding somebody and say, on your first try, find the coin I marked. Good luck. The probability of that happening is the probability of Jesus fulfilling, or one man fulfilling all of the prophecies Jesus fulfilled. Prophetic fulfillments are vital. And the scripture writers make it known. Matthew makes it known. He's the prophesied king. He comes on this cult. This had to happen. And look how Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies. He's coming in to bring peace. And he is the divine king. He's the one God has sent entering into Jerusalem. And he's also the humble king. Now, what do you think of when you, when you think of king? Some of you, or many of you, may have even watched Princess Diana's um, wedding decades ago on television, marrying Prince Charles, and there is pomp and circumstance for this event. Probably one of the most regal events in some of your lifetimes. You see the wealth of royalty there in that event. Now, you saw it on TV, but it would be very different if you were actually invited to that and, and being in attendance, wouldn't it? Yeah? And that would be something to boast in, in the, in the years to follow, wouldn't it? You wouldn't just go to people, well, I saw it on TV. You know, it's like, I was there. I saw it in person. Now, I want you to notice who's in attendance with Jesus' march into Jerusalem. Who are the people there? It's not, it's not primarily the citizens of Jerusalem. Galileans from outside the city are the ones who are welcoming him into Jerusalem. And again, to quote from David Platt, he writes, Jesus was surrounded by lowly Galileans as he came into the city, not with riches, but in poverty, not in majesty, but in meekness. He came humbly and mounted on a donkey. Who are the eyewitnesses to this account? It's meek and poor people. This is, this is a picture, a parable of a spiritual reality. Do you remember Jesus' story of the wedding feast? Who are the people who enter into the wedding feast? It's the outcasts of society who come into the wedding feast. It's the outcasts of society who are a part of the kingdom, so to speak. And, and I think we don't grasp this picture well enough because I actually think we esteem ourselves too highly. We look at the scenario and go, oh, wow, Jesus, he just reaches out to the poor. Way to go, Jesus. And we don't think we are part of the poor crowd and the needy crowd, the weak crowd, the look down upon maybe Galilean crowd. 
No, 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 we're, we're, we're something other than that. I mean, we approve what Jesus is doing, but we are not there. Only the weak, those who acknowledge their weakness, only those who are the poor spiritually, is what Jesus says, inherit the kingdom of heaven. Think about who Jesus welcomes to his triumphal entry. I mean, he's sovereign over all, and God chooses these kinds of people in order to praise Jesus. Jesus, the divine, prophesied, peaceful king who deserves all of heaven's acclaim, humbled himself to the praises of these people. Yet we, many times, we don't want to humble ourselves to actually view ourselves like that. And, and, and we're worse. We've rebelled against the king. We've committed treason against the creator. We deserve punishment. I'll tell you this. If, if we look at this story and see that Jesus accepts the needy, and if we actually admit our neediness, there's a lot of freedom in this. Tremendous freedom in this. Because if Jesus accepts the needy, then I don't have to hide anymore that I'm needy. I can be open and bare before the one who welcomes me in his arms. I don't have to fake it until I get to heaven. I can be open before my Lord and say, this is how needy I am. You knew it. And now I confess it. The scriptures tell us that those who humble themselves before God, that he accepts them. Those who open themselves or acknowledge where they're at, that God lifts them up. Those who humble themselves before him. So listen, look at the humble Jesus. And by the way, Jesus' humility is different than our kind of humility. Jesus actually did sacrifice what he deserved. The humility the Bible calls us to is just admit where you're really at. Let Jesus' humility impel you to be open before him and humble yourself before him and take off the mask. Here I am, Lord, the humble king, bowing before him, but he's also the messianic king. Verse 9 says, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest Now, the word Hosanna means, oh, save or save us. But then we have this phrase, son of David. And that phrase is significant, actually, in Matthew's writing. Son of David is a theme throughout the book, and it starts in chapter 1. Because he starts off with a genealogy to show that Jesus is the son of David. Not just of the lineage of David, but the son of David, which is a title term to refer to the Messiah, the one who's going to come and rule someday on the throne of David forever in a kingdom of peace. And here in this moment when they are confessing he is the son of David, Jesus welcomes that praise. He is the Messiah. But again, I think we do have to recognize the people didn't fully understand what Messiah meant. There's confusion over what the Messiah was supposed to do. And I I can understand that in reading the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, let's just take the book of Isaiah alone, a book full of prophecies about the Messiah. 
it could look like there's two messiahs if you read the book of Isaiah. You have one who conquers, one who rules over all, and then he's also despised and rejected of man. What? How does... That doesn't work. And now it's not just in Isaiah. It's throughout the whole Old Testament scriptures, even Daniel chapter 9. Here's one who's going to be cut off and rule. He's going to... What? That doesn't make sense. So what it seems like, many people in that day, all, all they focused on was the conquering pieces, which is what we all tend to like to do. Let's, let's just focus on the positive. Let's just focus on the conquer. No death, no suffering, no pain. Stop that. They don't know what they're saying when they're saying, oh, save. They don't know what they're saying when they're saying, you are the son of David. But Jesus knows exactly what he's doing when he walks into the city. He knows that he must save in the highest. He must save completely. Again, more than simply having walls around a city and feeling safe and secure and comfy in your home. Jesus must save people from their sins. Jesus must rescue them from the wrath that they deserve for the sins that they have committed. And so Jesus enters into this city. Isn't it interesting? He enters into the city of Jerusalem on Passover week. That's no coincidence, is it? Coming into the city where later on there are going to be people who are going to be sacrificing animals, praising God that blood of a animal can atone for their sins. And yet Jesus in that week is going to be taken outside the camp, so to speak, and he's going to be crucified and he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And by his own blood being shed, he takes the curse that sinners deserve so that the sinners who entrust themselves to him will find blessing and welcome and acceptance and life and joy and identity in God. That's what Jesus came to do as the messianic king. And his resurrection proves, by the way, his resurrection proves that he's coming back fully conquering everything. So he is the messianic king. And he's also the prophet king. The crowd is so loud as Jesus is entering, it says that it caused a stir in the city. And the people in Jerusalem then ask the people, who is this person? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, this prophet from Galilee. Wait, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Remember that story in John? But they're saying Jesus is a prophet. Finally, after three years of ministry, Jesus is affirmed at least somewhat by the people. Now I know some of you might be sitting there and go, well, he's not just a prophet. See, they don't get it. But I don't think we should demean the phrase prophet. Because in Deuteronomy, there's a prophecy about a greater prophet than Moses that's to come. And that prophet who's going to come, he's going to bring a greater rescue than what Moses could have brought to the people. (laughs) Jesus is that prophet. He is the prophet, the great prophet. And what what is characteristic of a prophet? A prophet, when they prophesy, they never lie in their prophecies. And they're always pointing people to God. And what has Jesus done for his years of ministry? The Bible tells us there was no deceit found in his mouth. So he never lied. And when Jesus was pointing people to God, he actually pointed to himself. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. How many I am statements that John writes of Jesus saying, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus didn't just point to a system of law, so obey this, do this, be like this. Instead, Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment of the law. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls. Amazing grace. Jesus is the prophet the divine prophet who points people to himself and in humility rescues sinners. He comes in triumph into the city. I'm the one. Look to him. He's the great prophet. But how can he make and keep these kind of promises? I think we move on in the story and we also see Jesus is the holy king. Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem And what's recorded as his first location after he enters the city? Where does he go? You can say it out loud. The temple. So Jesus goes into the temple. Now keep in mind, there's a lot of foreigners or a lot of people from different towns at this this point in time, Passover week. It is full of people. In addition, Jesus has entered into what some have referred to as the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles was a place for the nations to be able to pray to God, to be able to worship God. But that's really not taking place there. People use it as a quick way to get from point A to point B, just walk through this area. And then there's all this commerce taking place in there. Now, Jesus, when he's entered into that area, we read He said to them, verse 13, It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, right before that in verse 12, it says he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. Why is Jesus so angry? It's because they're not fulfilling the purpose of the temple. But what is the purpose of the temple? And and don't, don't just say Jesus is angry because they're selling things. We actually have to get deeper here. Jesus says, you've made it a den of thieves. Now, to give you an idea of the vileness of the temple practices that were taking place, you have to understand the high priest at the time. And he utilized the temple for his own power. The business that took place in the court of the Gentiles was actually referred to in history as the Bazaar of Annas. Because he ensured that only animals bought in the temple were the animals blessed by the priests. Well, then what animal did the people have to buy? What animal? The ones in the temple. They can't go outside. They got to have the ones blessed by the priests. So so he, he forced that. But then in addition to that, Annas incorporated franchise fees for the booths in the temple. And to add to that, he, ha- he also made a rule that a portion of the prophets had to be given to him as well. And to add to that, if you just had Roman currency, you had to come in and transfer that currency into temple currency at a 25% transferal rate. In addition to that, the animals were 10 times the normal price outside of the temple. No wonder Jesus says, you've turned it into a den of thieves. You're stealing from people. You're abusing this system and using it for your own personal benefit. 
Now, in this passage, when Jesus states, my house should be called a house of prayer, you've made it a den of thieves. One of the passages, Jeremiah 7:11, in that context, the prophet is warning against a type of superstition that elevates the temple and warns against behavior that dishonors the temple. Jesus accuses them of being a den of thieves, and the word thieves in the Greek actually can carry the idea of being a nationalistic rebel. And so one commentator writes of this saying, the temple had become the premier symbol, the premier symbol of superstitious belief that God would protect and rally his people irrespective of their conformity to his will. So Jesus enters into the temple and Jesus says to them, essentially, I didn't come to line the pockets of superstitious, self-sufficient people. Your salvation does not rest in certain appearances of godliness. Your life doesn't rest in just doing these certain things and treating the temple like a lucky rabbit's foot. And by the way, you know what? We kind of do that today. Some people say, well, I went to church. Well, I gave money in the offering plate. Well, I did this. Well, I kind of do this thing over here. But the question is, is do you have your hope and trust in Jesus? Because only he saves. He's the king. And he's the master over the temple. So do you trust him or do you trust in the things? He's not just some genie in a lamp who gives you what you think you want best. He's the savior who really saves us from the inside out. The holy one who makes God known. And, and I, I say he's the holy king because the reality was they didn't recognize their sinfulness. These people just thought they could use the, attempt, the temple for their their purposes as opposed to seeing I'm a sinner and I need a savior and Jesus comes in to purify the temple to say I am that savior the holy set apart pure one and that actually leads me into the next point he's the pure king the point is is honed in on the religious leaders spurn Jesus and what he's doing they're mad that Jesus pinpointed their idolatry and by the way Most of us tend to get mad when our idolatry is pointed out. You do something and somebody says, you know what, I kind of think you were meaning this instead of this. And what's your natural response? How dare you? How dare you not trust me? And then we know what they're saying is true. The, The religious leaders, similar thing. Jesus pinpoints the idolatry. They're mad. But then there are some people in that temple, who are blessed by Jesus, and they actually accept their neediness before him. The, the, it's the unclean people. And I say unclean because that's what the Bible would have termed people who are blind and lame. These are people who could come into a part of the temple, but they couldn't experience all of the temple. And then Jesus comes and heals those people, freeing them completely. Now, I want to emphasize this a little bit more because in the Old Testament scriptures, we're taught that if somebody touched Someone who's unclean, what does that make them? Makes them unclean. And the reason is, is because, I mean, they clearly can't heal that person. The uncleanness comes off on them. But when Jesus touches them, they become clean. Which means that Jesus' purity is greater than the uncleanness. Jesus purifies those people, those needy, sick, weak people, so that they can worship God. 
They are clean in the presence of God. So Jesus coming in on the donkey reveals, I've come to bring a kingdom of peace to weak, weary, needy, sick, unclean people so that those people can worship God. And we're that kind of people, right? Apart from Jesus, we are unclean and needy of Jesus' rescue. But through faith in him, he makes us clean. And that leads us to the ninth characteristic. Jesus is the worthy king. Now, in response to Jesus' cleansing, is children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, Matthew even writes here, and I, I find it interesting, the wording he uses, that the chief priests and scribes see the wonderful things. And they hear the children, and it makes them angry. Man, if the children start believing this, they're not going to be making their money anymore. They're not going to have their power anymore. They're, they're mad. Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus says, have you never read? These are people who claim to be experts in the Bible. And for Jesus to say, have you ever read the Bible? Like, have you ever cracked it open before? How dare you? And yet Jesus just quotes from the scriptures. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Another prophetic fulfillment. Children will praise the Messiah. But there is more to this. Again, I see a parable in these children that speak to us. You know, Jesus, when he talks about children, he says, unless you become like a child, you won't enter into the kingdom. Unless you become like a child. Now, by the way, I don't believe, and I think I've said this before, but I don't believe when Jesus says, unless you become like a child, that means that you're, you're very believing of everything. Um, my children don't believe everything I say. And I know that your children don't believe everything you say either. Right? I mean, your children disobey too. Yeah? Yeah? Come on. Respond. Don't shake your head no. Um, the point of being like a child is children are needy. They, they are dependent on their survival for you. On you. For many, 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 many things. <laughs> They need us as parents. And so here in this story, the children are crying out to Jesus as children. You are the son of David. Save, praise your name. You know what I find very interesting? It's the, it's the unclean children, Galileans, who praise the Lord more easily than it is the self-sufficient religious leaders. We people have to always recognize our neediness for God and his grace in filling us in our neediness. Man, when we talk about faith, when we talk about dependence on him, do you rejoice in that or do you recoil in that? You've got to prove something to God. You don't have to prove anything to him. By his grace we stand. Even the song we sung, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Praise God, I'm constrained to his grace. 
and his grace fills me and his grace empowers me to live for his glory. He is the divine, peaceful, prophesied, humble, messianic, prophet, holy, pure, worthy king. I hope you ponder the magnificence of this. Here's the one entering into the city. And we get to see what, this, what Jesus was really communicating. They, even at the time, didn't understand all of it. But we get to. So I can imagine the scenario and praise Jesus that he is this king. And rejoice in the events. But there's actually more to this triumphal entry that we have to understand. And I say we have to because both Mark and Matthew emphasize one little story in the midst of this triumphal entry that that almost seems out of place. But since both of the guys put it in here, I think we ought to pay attention to it. And I'm just going to state it briefly. But we need to read verses 18 through 22. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now that's not just a story saying Jesus was hungry, he didn't get some food, so he was angry at the tree and he made it wither. That's not the point of the story. There, again, another parable, another story to teach us a spiritual truth. So here's the basic gist. A fig tree that has leaves on it communicates that there's fruit on it. Even if the fruit is not ripe, there should be something there on that tree. Jesus goes to the tree, there's no fruit on the tree. So the tree has false advertising. We, we understand false advertising in our culture today, don't we? I, I, again, I think I've used this illustration before, but, you know, double mint gum, double, double your enjoyment. Do you remember that as a kid? Double, double your enjoyment, double your refreshment. No single gum double freshens your mouth like double mint gum. No, no single gum. Then you put it in your mouth, you're like, it doesn't feel as great as those cool people riding their bikes on the TV. You know, I mean, it's fine. It's a good gum. It's okay. But it's not that amazing. And we have false advertising all around us. I mean, even uh, one of my kids recently was talking to one of his other siblings as we were at McDonald's, and he was just like, you know, Happy Meals, they're not that great. The toy, it breaks anyway. You know, they're getting it. You know, it looks great, but it's not that great. It's not that great. So here it is with the fig tree. The fig tree is saying, hey, I got some fruit on me, and they go, and there's no fruit. What is the deal with this? Jesus makes it wither because of the false advertising. Now, why, what does this have to do with the triumphal entry? Jesus teaches his disciples it's not about the fig tree. And he says that if they have faith, they'll be able to say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. Now, I actually believe that Jesus is referencing a specific mountain here. Say to this mountain. What mountain would he be looking at from that view? There's, there's two potentials. But given the fact that Jesus had just, or the, how Matthew writes it, Jesus had talked to the religious leaders in the temple, he would have seen the temple mount from this location. And standing there, he's saying, 
If you have faith, this will even be overturned. Jesus had told the religious leaders, you don't really have faith. You don't really trust God. You're not really worshiping him. I have come to bring a real great salvation. That's not like this. And that temple is going to be destroyed. That's what I believe Jesus is talking about in the lesson of the fig tree. The religious leaders in the temple, it has leaves. That's all it has. No fruit. It's a fruitless tree. But Jesus has come to Jerusalem to give genuine victory. He's come to bring real worship to needy people. And the emphasis of all of this is that Jesus impels us to faith working through a relationship of prayer that leads to obedience. Now, relationship of prayer that leads to obedience. Where did prayer come from? Like there's no, he doesn't talk about prayer in this. And then all of a sudden, he comes to the end and he talks about praying and receiving. Where did prayer come from? I am increasingly convinced that we in the Western culture have so separated faith from prayer, that's why we're confused when the word prayer comes up. But Jesus so closely links faith and prayer. You really can't divide those things. If you have faith, you're going to pray. If you have faith, you will pray. If you know your need for God, you will pray. How can you have a relationship with God if you don't talk to God? If Jesus came to change us from the inside out, we will speak to him. We will know our neediness and we will depend on him and we will commune with God in our neediness. And when we grow in our awareness of our neediness and we grow in prayer, we will also grow in obedience and we will bear fruit, real fruit, not just a sign of fruit. Jesus came to bring about faith in him, working through a relationship of prayer that leads to obedience. That's what his triumphal entry speaks to. He's the king of the world over the temple. And people don't just worship him in that little temple, but now that court of the Gentiles, it's all over the world. The whole world is called to him. And the people cried out in Jesus' entry, They said, Hosanna, Hosanna. And by the end of that week, Jesus said, it is finished. They said, save, save. And Jesus said, I did it. We praise his name. All who submit to him and recognize their need for him, worship the one who suffered And someday, he's coming again, but he's not coming on a colt. He's not coming on a donkey. The Bible tells us when he comes again, he's coming on a horse. And that's our conquering king. I pray you've trusted him. I hope you've trusted in him. And you rely on him because you experience his forgiveness and grace. Jesus, the divine, prophesied, peaceful, humble, messianic prophet, holy, pure, worthy king, came to free us to praise God, trust him, pray to him, and to bear fruit in our lives, all by his grace. Through his triumphant death, he gives victory. Praise God for the message of the triumphal entry. Let's pray. Lord, hallowed be your name. Jesus is king. Jesus is master. Jesus is divine. And Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts to rejoice and what Jesus has done. 
I, I can't make my heart sing your praise. I can't make the people here to sing your praise. Only your Holy Spirit can work within us so that we would actually, truly, honestly rejoice in the God who would humble himself, take on the form of a human, a servant, and then die on the crucifixion death and bear your wrath. For us, Lord, let us rejoice. Let us praise you. Let us be amazed and enthralled and, Lord, repentant. Clinging to you and rejoicing in you that you are great and you are good and you've done it all. So, Lord, may we truly sing all hail the power of Jesus' name. All hail King Jesus because he's worthy. Amen. So hear these words as we dismiss. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.